Everybody, I am here today with Ben Brown. Ben is the CEO of Journey Business Solutions. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I am doing great, doing great. So Ben and I and Patty are going to dive in and talk about a topic that I really don't think has been talked about enough in our industry, which is W-2 versus 1099 sales teams and building that high-performance sales team. Um, right. Very important topic. Before we do that, though, Ben, I'd love to get your background, give us a little context. Uh, you know, How did you get into this industry? Tell us about Journey Business Solutions and how that was uh, created. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I, I started out in the in a big bank, one of the, the big four banks, and started out on the lending side, but then the last uh, seven or eight of my 15 years at the bank was on the merchant services side. So really learned the industry through um, sort of the bank and first data joint venture. Um, was a regional sales manager, had a really large group of sales folks, three three big states, and you know, kind of learned the industry well from that side mm-hmm. of, of the industry, the banking side, uh, but really felt like there was uh, sort of a better opportunity to serve customers, um, a better opportunity from a career standpoint sure. with, with team members and being able to have a long-term book of business, right. have more point-of-sale options, mm-hmm. and just felt like we could serve customers a little bit better outside of the bank. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That happens a lot, I know. Right. Yeah. So how long has Journey Business Solutions been around? Yeah, we've been around for almost three years. Okay. Um, at this point, it's, it's really gone well so far. So I was going to say, you scaled, up, you scaled up pretty fast. I, I, for I some was reason, just, yeah. I thought it was around a lot longer than that. For some yeah, reason. I mean, I was just looking at your, uh, at your numbers, and that's pretty good for three years. Yeah. Very good for three years, my friend. Yeah. I uh, appreciate it. So, so Ben, let's let's dive in because I know we're going to cover a lot more about Journey Business Solutions and and kind of what you've built there. But I want to talk about high performance teams, and I'm really fascinated by the impact of W two versus 1099 on kind of the culture of the sales team, yeah. the accountability, the management, etc. So, talk to me, Ben, about three years ago when you got started. You know, you're building your sales team. What were the things that you felt were most important in order to achieve the results that you wanted to achieve? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, you know, we, we really wanted to build a brand and a culture and, and a team atmosphere that was a little bit different than what we've seen kind of in the independent sales world where you, you've got hundreds of 1099s. It seems like if, you know, if somebody has got any experience in sales, even if it's extremely light, you know, they'll sort of take you on board. You know, we wanted to go a little bit more of a hybrid route where we've got people who are maybe have a little bit more of the in-house feel and and a team feel instead of just, you know, extremely large group of independent 1099 reps, none of which know each other. They're not on team calls. You know, they're, they're watching a couple of videos, got a couple of free terminals, and, and probably know a very light um, amount about the industry and, and go out there and see if you can sort of sink or swim. Right. You know, we wanted that hybrid culture where we have people that are extremely well-trained, trained in-house, um, maybe have more experience than most in the industry, if not merchant experience, you know, strong B2B sales experience, but then really highly train them to be point-of-sale experts and, and give them those options to get benefits in W-2 and, and have more of a team atmosphere and team feel is what we wanted to build. 
And, and so I think to interject there, I mean, it sounds like what you're describing is a W-2 model. So is that how you started out your team with bringing some people in that were W-2? You know, we, we, we tried a number of things, but we, we really, you know, we, we wanted to build that brand where if, if somebody has a journey business solutions, business card, that, that we, we felt like they were going to come in and do a great job for a business owner. And we really wanted to be a little more restrictive on who we brought in, whether it was in the 1099 format. And, and lots of times we would look at the 1099 format if somebody was a little less proven to us or maybe they didn't have industry experience or, you know, we're going to kind of take a little bit more of a chance with them having the opportunity to move into a W-2 role if, if they prove their self. But then we also looked at some folks that, you know, they had industry experience, so they had really strong B2B, or we, we knew them from previous experience, and we would bring them directly into that W-2 role. So we kind of had both of those two models and then kind of a way to move into that W-2 role. And, you know, one of the things that we saw is if you're going to go out there and get true superstars and, and people that are going to see this position as a career position, then you probably need to offer some of those things that a W-2 position does with benefits and that team camaraderie and, and internal contests and some of the things that's going to keep them long term. So let me ask if you don't mind. Um, I'm wondering, you know, that this is this is a really interesting topic, James, because I, I mean, I've heard people talk about this a lot over the years. Yeah. Can you give me a sense of I mean, I, and I think that's a ver- very interesting strategy you have sort of the migrate, you know, mm-hmm. sort of a path for for the 1099s. Can you just give us a sense of maybe, you know, what kind of uh, percentages or something are W-2s versus 1099s? Yeah, so we're we're about fifty fifty okay. of of W two versus ten ninety nine, and you know I would say that our production comes probably eighty five percent or maybe close to ninety percent from our W two. I bet sure our W two folks. Yeah, yeah, okay. that's that's the crazy thing about it is you can be fifty fifty as far as the number of people, but right. as far as the deal count, it's like yeah, sure, yeah, because yeah. Of those that are those that are committed, uh, and that kind of gives you and also gives you a sense, I guess, of. As you, as Ben was explaining, the sort of the migration path, right? Right. So as these right. guys become right. better and better, then they're more more logical as a W two. Sure. So so Ben, let's let's keep going down this path a little bit. So let's talk about training and accountability. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the training and the accountability. Uh, in you know, I'm in my consulting practice, and you know, I'm a sales trainer, and so I'm I'm always I, I'm actually working with an ISO right now that I looked at uh, yesterday, and they're 1099, and they paid me to create this amazing custom video training program, mm-hmm. and their agents aren't going through it. Well, how do you wow. force them to do that? Like, you know, they're independent yeah, contractors. Right. So talk a little bit about that, Ben. What's How do you handle training and accountability, and how does the W-2 versus 1099 kind of impact that? Yeah, so, you know, that was one of the, the big things that, that we saw when we first we first started this business. We'd get on these calls, you know, these new sales agent calls with, with some of our new back-end partners, and, you know, we would hear, we'd be on there with 30 or 40 or 50 people, of course, and, we would hear some of the questions that people would ask on there. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, this guy didn't have a chance. Yeah. And, and I can tell, right. Right. You know, I can tell the amount of training. I could see the amount of training that he was going to get mm-hmm. and the questions he was asking and his ability to get that help deal to deal that, that field help. 
beyond just a training topic, a video, a, a series of videos. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy's got no chance. Mm-hmm. And and I know how hard this industry is. And, and I'm thinking this guy's going to go out there and he's going to sign his brother. He's going to sign his mom. Right. And he's not going to sign a third deal. And maybe that company's okay with that. You know, I, I, I'm not. You know, I, I right. wouldn't be okay with that. Right. I want to see team members successful. And so if we're – we're going to be a little harder to, to get on board with us, but if you're going to get on board with us, we're going to commit equally to, to the commitment you made to us. And so, right. you know, I think one of the things from a training standpoint, we, we built an internal training program. We call it JBS University, and it's got tons of video content, tons of customer-facing content, videos, audio you know, flyers, marketing right. material, steps for every single process. And so we realized at first we were bringing these people in. We had to repeat the same training so many times. Mm-hmm. Sure. That kept us from having to repeat that same training just on process and some of the more simple things. But then I think what really differentiates us is the deal-to-deal help within those first 90 days, 120 days, 150 days where team members, even if they've got experience, they may not have experience with our product or they, right. they may have Your experience paperwork. in the industry, but, sure. but yeah, but they're, they're, they're terminal folks, right? They, they mm-hmm. haven't stepped sure. into being a true point of sale professional. So we have to teach them how to be a point of sale professional and teach them how to be a cash discount professional versus just being an industry terminal guy or somebody with some B2B sales experience. So I think that's what differentiates us. We've got the best leadership. You know, I've got leaders that are in the field with our team members consistently right. and help on a deal-to-deal basis, which I think makes a huge difference getting them off to a good start. So you're doing the that kind of help on a deal-to-deal basis as well as the videos. So like the videos would be sort of before you send them out into the field, and then the hand-holding follows that? I mean, because I think just to, to James's point in terms of the accountability and making sure they really understand what they're doing, uh, I just wanted to get a clearer sense for that. Yeah, so so it is a combination of those two things. You're exactly right. And and they get 24-7 access to JBS University in, on their phone, on the computer, whatever. Uh-huh. And so we can we can utilize that when they ask questions. Hey, okay. how do I do this? Well, right. That's, okay. That's it. That's mm-hmm. under this section, this pod. I mean, why, why aren't you in there? You know, right. Like, sure. And, uh-huh. and they start, it, it, and we use that as a resource, and then they get confident that there really is good content in there, and there's right. everything they need. Right. But then on top of that, we can see what they're doing in it. We can see that they've gone through each mm-hmm. each pod. We can mm-hmm. see exactly yep. what they've done. Right. And so we know what their level of commitment to learning the process is sure. versus are they just going to pick up the phone and call me every time. Right. And, right. and I always say to them, if you're stuck, I will get you unstuck. But if you didn't even try to get yourself unstuck, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> I, I'm, right. not, I'm not here for you know, but before you even try. Right. Sure. I want to encourage them to be independent sure. and, and to be confident and to try to figure it out themselves. And so, you know, I think it is that field work, which which everybody needs in the first 30, 60, 90 days, even if they've got experience. Sure. And sure. then always having that training, both both to start, but also to refer back to if they need it. 
So Ben, let's, uh, and I, this is really, really interesting, good information. Um, I want to though dive back into the W2 1099 topic here because I have a question that I think a lot of our listeners may be uh, asking right now. And that is, what exactly do we mean when we say W-2 versus 1099? So when you're talking about these W-2 people, um, talk to us about two things. Talk to us about, you know, are these like straight commission or is there salary involved or, you know, commission draws or like, you know, what are, what are you know, what's the flexibility there? Or is it kind of very similar to 1099, but just more structured because they're W-2? And then also the other big question is residual, right? So mm. I had lunch with an agent yesterday that had terrible experience, been in the industry now for over six years, sold several hundred accounts, but he was a W-2 employee for some of the larger companies. And when he finally just went out on his own in May, uh, after selling about 200 merchants, he had zero residual because he was W-2 and it didn't include the residual. So I think there's some misconceptions about, number one, if somebody's W-2, that means you have to pay them a salary, which of course you don't. Right. And then the other misconception is if they're W-2, you can't pay them residual. So can you talk about those two and kind of how you structure that? Yeah, that, that is a great question and, and really goes back to what we experienced at the large bank. You know, for the large bank to be able to pay a decent salary, what they had to do was pay more in the 10 to 30 percent range for right. residuals. Right. And on top of that, it had to be over a rolling book of business, meaning you would only get those residuals for a 12, 12 or 13 months, or 15 right. month period of time. Uh-huh. And so I, I hated that model on top sure. of the fact that how much are you going to care about your client or how much are you motivated to care about your client long-term if you're not going to get a residual right. for it long-term. And and number two, I mean, the, the bank had, you know, one product set for a point of sale system, you know, Clover brand and, sure. and that was it. So we didn't feel like it, it met all the needs of everybody of, of our customers out there. Sure. And for us to be able to have 10 different point of sales to meet all the needs, but going back to your question, um, we, we tried all of those routes and we tried the route of, Hey, I'm going to give them a base salary, but we're going to give lower upfronts and, and lower residuals. And we found that in that model, the superstars were not getting paid what they deserved. Right. And mm-hmm. we found that the people who weren't doing much at all were getting paid much more, more than they deserved. <laughs> and so we, sure. we, we didn't see that model work. And, you know, then, then we, we went, we kind of landed um, at this model of, a much higher upfront. So we're paying, we pay really good upfronts. We have opportunity. And I know you've talked about this on, on a couple of your other uh, podcasts with, with in-house ACH programs for program fees for mm-hmm. equipment. Sure. So they can make good money off equipment. They can make good money off equipment leasing or, or sell the sale of equipment. And then we pay really good residuals and we pay them for a lifetime, you know, right. as long mm-hmm. as they're with, with journey. And so, um, we think it's really key, it's really important to to make sure that they've got solid residuals that are going to pay over the long term because it's going to motivate the team member to really be honest with their customer up front, fit them into the right product, mm-hmm. and, and give that extra service after the sale as well, too. You know, we've, we've dabbled in the uh, – in kind of having that um, that draw – type of a thing right we've done that from time to time for 60 days or 90 days or 120 days to kind of help them get off you know get off the ground a little bit if they had experience and you know success in the past but i really think the key is is not to give a base but to give that long-term residual give a solid upfront give a solid opportunity to make money off the equipment 
and uh, give them the benefits, but do it for those that you trust, do it for those that have experience, do it for those that really are talented salespeople. Sure, sure. Yeah. So not to get too technical here, I don't want to get too far off in the weeds, but just one other, I'm trying to think like our listeners and some questions they would have about this. So I'm a W-2 sales rep for you and I build up $2,000 a month in residual and then I leave. Um, I'm assuming you have something in your contract that says that person converts to a 1099 or like, how do you actually continue paying someone who was W-2 who's no longer with you? Yeah, I mean, generally we would we would move them to a 1099 unless unless they were moving to a competitor. You know, we we do have we do have in the employment agreement that you know if they're going to move to a competitor and, and and take any of the you know deals that they've got. I mean, of course that would that would stop any residual payment after that. But we we've got the ability to move them to a 1099. And you know, frankly, even even if a team member comes in and we're expecting a certain amount of production from them, we're giving them a lot of effort and they get a lot of benefits and perks. I mean, we pay 50% of their medical, dental, and vision um, premium. So we, we do a lot of things for them. If they're not producing at all, maybe we suggest to them over time, hey, if, if this is going to be more of a part-time role for you, we can move you to a 1099 role, which might be a better fit. Right. So it gives you some of the flexibility to, to do some of those things, to, to reward somebody who is doing a great job, who may have came in as a 1099. Maybe they had a full-time job. They said, hey, I want to I think this is what I would rather do long-term for 90 days. Let me be 1099. And then I want to roll full-time. If I can just get a little bit of a a residual going first to help me over the hop, you know, so it gives you a lot of flexibility to reward those who deserve it. And maybe for those who underperform what they should to have a little bit of an accountability there. So what I hear you saying is it can kind of go both ways. You may have somebody come in as 1099, maybe they're part-time, they get to 1500 2000 a month in residual, whatever that number is, and they say, hey, I'm ready to go full-time, and you're like, okay, great, let's make you W-2, let's make you more part of the culture and the team. And then on the other side, you may have somebody that comes in W-2, but over time, they move on to another opportunity, and you say, hey, you know, if you're still going to be just kind of monitoring your accounts, but you want to go sell insurance instead of merchant services, maybe it's time to move this to a 1099 relationship. Is that, is that kind of what I hear you That's saying? That's exactly right. That's but if exactly they right. but if they move to a competitor, right, then it would be then there's some other conversations that have to happen. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Case by case. Yeah, case of course. Sure. That. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sure. Okay. okay, cool. All right. So um, now that we've kind of covered a lot of the stuff, sales structure and compensation and all that, I want to talk more generally about just activating the sales team. So, uh, you know, I spend a ton of time on this and so I always love to get other opinions. So, uh, you know, you've got the sales team. Great. How do you actually get them to go make a sale? And you've touched on this with kind of the handholding, but maybe give us a little bit more specifics on, is there a process? You know, how do you get these salespeople out to make sale one, two, three, four, five? Yeah. Um, so are you talking about somebody who's new or are you talking about the, the entire team? Uh, well, either one. Let's, let's start with somebody that's new. Let's say, let's say you have a new rep that comes in. Maybe they were the top you know, uh, B2B insurance salesman in your market and you just recruited them. Uh, what, do you, what do you do to help that person make their first five sales? Yeah, I, I think for a new person, it's all about building a strategy for them. And so you, know, you look at their previous experience and, and we've got different routes, whether that's Hey, I'm going to go build partnerships with small banks, with small mm-hmm. credit unions. We, mm-hmm. We've got experience doing that. We've got great partnerships. We can show them how to do that. Or, 
hey, we've got we've got sales genie, we've got other ways that you can make cold calls to set appointments if you've got experience making cold calls and setting appointments or, you know, targeting a certain vertical and hey, this week I you know, want you to walk into fifty different auto collision, auto repair shops if that's the strategy. But, you know, I think you find a strategy that fits for them and then, you know, my leadership team usually goes out in the field with them for the first few deals or first few days and and usually signs a deal or two for them and, and helps them to see that process, feel how that process works, hear, hear how to start that conversation, understand how to put notes into a CRM, understand how to be a professional in terms of following up and, and what it takes to get, get that deal closed, oftentimes the third or fourth or fifth visit. So it's walking through some of those steps that may feel like basics to somebody who's very experienced, but if you're newer, you know, we need to make sure those those fundamentals are solid and we try to start building that in the first couple of weeks, but then setting expectations, you know, for them. And, you know, in this hybrid role, even though we give a ton of autonomy, you know, nobody's getting babysat, we can still, you know, set some, set some goals and, you know, have a strategy and, and, and kind of help make sure that they're following that strategy. And that, that usually helps people get off to a really good start. Sure. And I mean, it, it sounds to you like what you're saying is it's like, you know, you can even talk to the salesperson, right, and have them set their own goals of, hey, you know, what are you going to accomplish? But the the key is when they're W-2, you're legally, you know, encouraged and allowed to actually follow up and say, you know, not just, yes, you should go to 50 businesses, but you're able to follow up and say, did you go to 50 businesses? Mm -hmm. You know, so that's right. Right. As a W-2, I mean, to me, that's the big advantage there is that you are able to have this, you know, and and again, I mean, there's a lot of ISOs that are, they have 1099 contractors and they are, honestly in many cases treating them like employees Mm -hmm. which is so much more dangerous because now if one of these employees has a a car accident or something god forbid when they're out in the field and they could potentially sue that iso and say well i'm really your employee you know why i'm your employee because you tell me when to start work every day you tell me what to do while i'm working and you tell me when to stop right and so any judge is going to say that's an employee so they're it's interesting because it's like there's two ISO, uh, there's two types of ISOs listening right now. There are those who are actually treating their 1099s as W-2 anyway, and they should make them W-2 so they actually have a handle on their legal liability uh, and their financial liability. Right. And then there's those who are basically just leaving their sales reps out to do whatever they want, never helping them, never training them, and trying to figure out why they don't have any sales. So I hang I think, them out to dry. Yeah. So I think there's some some really good info. Is there anything in this process been that like surprised you? Were there any big challenges? Like you know, as you were building the sales team, any roadblocks you hit or things where you kind of had to scratch your head and and find a, a way around it? You know, it's it's always just people that that surprise you. <laughs> you know, pe- people people you thought you could trust and people sure. you, you thought you knew and. And, and they don't turn out to have the same level of, of commitment to, right. to customers and, and to the team. And, you know, but, but then there are people that you find and, and you just, you can't believe the commitment that they have to our team and our culture and building right. something that, that they don't even own, but they feel like they do. And, you know, I feel like what we're building is, is truly special and it's got that team feel and it's got that all boats rise together feel and, and finding people that fit that culture and finding people who want to be a part of something different, special, and, and want the team to win versus, you know, how much money are you going to pay me? And, you know, we're, we're paying a whole lot of money, so it's not that they're not making the money, but they really feel more excited about seeing the team win is sort of the culture that we've tried, tried mm-hmm. to build. And I think that's what's been 
the key to our success so far. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good stuff. So, uh, Ben, this has been uh, just some awesome information. I think a lot really of has. I think a lot of ISO managers, executives, maybe are thinking about their strategy right now and wondering if maybe they're missing something. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, again, you know, it's, it's no secret. I'm not going to name names, but I mean, look around the industry at the, at the ISOs that are starting, that are being successful, that are scaling. Yep. And you're going to see a lot of exactly what we talked about today, this hybrid W2-1099, sure, right. because they're able to provide so much more resources and hold people accountable. So Ben, uh, last thing, last question for you. So I know there are people listening now that are like, I want to learn more about uh, Journey Business Solutions and, and they want to learn more about you. Where would you send them? Yeah, I, I would tell them to uh, to email us at admin at journeybizsolutions.com, admin, A-D-M-I-N, at journeybizsolutions.com. That'll come to me. It'll come to all of our leadership. And uh, any, anyone with uh, strong B2B sales experience or industry experience, you know, if you feel like uh, there might be a better fit for you, definitely reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you. And uh, just to clarify, that's journeybiz, B-I-Z, solutions.com. Got it. That's exactly right. Awesome, Ben. Well, man, thank you so much for your time today. I know a lot of people got a lot of value from this one, and I just really appreciate you taking the time to share the information with us. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For the past 36 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at greensheet.com. Okay, so James, this summer marks the 50th anniversary of the first ATM in the United States. Wow. And it was placed in downtown New York City by Chemical Bank, which was a large New York bank at the time that eventually became part of Chase Manhattan. Okay. And uh, it's, it's kind of funny because it's one of the, the uh, several momentous events that occurred in the summer of 69. Uh, and, yes, I am old enough to remember those things. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to take today to take just a few minutes today to explore uh, this topic and get p- sure. people interested in thinking about why they should be selling ATM services if they aren't already. Right, you right, know? right. You know, because despite predictions to the contrary, cash and and the ATMs that dispense, dispense cash are are here for the long haul. Absolutely. Uh, back in uh, last year, actually, the Federal Reserve's 2018 Diary of Consumer Payment Choice found cash is the most used payment type among American consumers, representing 36% of all huh. payments. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. That's still a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. still a lot. It's not, not quite the cashless society we were That we were, we were told we, that it right? was going to be, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, convenience demands um, mean, you know, consumers are looking to access uh, their cash when they need it most. Right. Which is usually when they're in retail locations. Sure. Um. You know, a number in city. In addition to that, you know, we have a number of cities and states that have passed or are considering laws uh, that would require merchants to accept cash. I think you I, might remember yep. last year when some of the I was just reading about that actually uh, yesterday. Some news reports about you know different businesses in New York and whatnot, especially and it, in yeah. New York, LA, yep. some of the big cities where they're like, oh, we don't want to handle cash. And so in New York, they passed a, an ordinance that you gotta right, right. Um, so, you know, you have that. And then I thought this was very interesting. The Bank for International Settlements is the central bank central bank. 
Right. Okay, all the central banks get together and yeah. they issue policies and data and stuff like that. And here's what they said about cash usage, that it continues to, you know, in terms of talking about how it continues right, right. to increase. Quote, retail payment systems continue to become faster and more efficient. Yet despite increased use of electronic payments around the world, there's scant evidence of a shift away from cash. As the appetite for cash remains unabated, few societies are close to cashless or even less cash. In fact, demand for cash has risen in almost advanced in, in most advanced economies since the start of the great financial crisis back in 20, 2008. And it says uh, this resurgence appears to be driven by store of value motives, reflecting lower opportunity cost of holding cash, right, rather than by their payment needs, hmm. which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. So here's a little bit of history. The earliest ATMs were proprietary and they were tethered to banks. And then over time, the banks started uh, banding together in networks, first local, then regional, sure. then national. Sure. Um, and they would allow their customers to withdraw funds from another bank for a fee. Sure. Right? Sure. It, uh, is, it is interesting, too, I have to bring up because, like, you know, we talk so much about Visa and MasterCard, Discover, American Express. Mm -hmm. But really, even on our podcast, we probably never even mentioned the name NYCE, Pulse, Excel. Right. All the debit network. All the debit networks. Which, like, they're plus, pretty, pretty big deal. There's a lot of them out there. Yeah. And, and and let's be also clear. You have each of the major car brands owns an ATM network. Right. You know, Pulse is owned by Dis by Discover. Right. Uh, Cirrus is owned by MasterCard. Visa has Plus. Okay. Um, so, you know, those are. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. Clearly, they know there's a there's a business. Right. There. Right. Right. And. Uh, so yeah, so you know the 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 first the first retail establishments uh, to put banking ATMs in, not surprising, were grocers, because um, they had a long history of cashing paychecks. Right. There was a period right. back in the '80s. I interviewed a guy back in the mid '80s. He was the uh, treasurer for Public Supermarkets, which is a big chain huge. in the South. Oh yeah, right? huge. Yeah. He told me at the time that this was like probably 1984, 1985. That public supermarkets cashed more checks than any of the banks in the state of Florida. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. And, yeah. you know, a lot of them, I mean, people would go on Friday afternoons with their paychecks. Right. Cash them at the grocers. And, and the grocers buy. knew they'd be buying groceries. Right. They wanted to cash the checks there because they wanted people to have money to spend. Right. So it was pretty logical that they would then go in and say, hey, you can put your ATM here. Right. I can deploy my people doing you Absolutely. Know, more money-making activities. Yep. So, um, but the real takeoff in terms of um, non-bank ATMs happened in um, the mid-1990s, and that's when Visa and MasterCard changed rules to support ATM surcharging. Right, okay, right. Okay, so it used to be... It became a money-making opportunity. Big money-making opportunity. And as, um, you know, what, and here's the really interesting thing. In uh, 1996, there were 140,000 ATMs in the U.S. Most right. of them were owned by banks. Right. Do you know how many there are today? No. 470,000. Really? So it's almost wow. a fourfold <clears throat> or a three, at least a threefold yeah. increase. A little more than threefold increase. A little That's more crazy. than threefold increase. Wow. And now most of them are owned by ISOs. Right. Right. Um, and worldwide, uh, there are, I thought this was interesting. Uh, the uh, number of ATMs per 1,000 inhabitants has surged 50% since uh, 2007. 
Wow. That's a pretty it substantial. Is. And a lot of that is, you know, emerging economies. Right. Where right. there weren't anything, was nothing before. Sure. But, you know, the U.S. went up by 300%. Yeah. So yeah. you can, you know. Sure. Um, so, like I said, uh, most of the, you know, there's a lot of these ATMs are ISO owned and a lot of those are cash dispensers. Mm-hmm. Just mostly cash right. dispensers. But some of them will take deposits and do some sure. other things. Sure. Um, what I, the largest, uh, ATM ISO is Cardtronics, and it has over 100,000. Wow. Which is almost as many as there were banks back in the bank deployed. Sure. Um, Better than two-thirds of ATMs today are deployed in um, retail locations, according to the National ATM Council, which is a trade association for uh, ATM ISOs. Okay. Okay. Um, Sure. And... um, like I, I may, as I may have said before, the earliest uh, deployments after grocery stores when they started doing surcharging. Right. No surprise here. Casinos and airports. <laughs> of course, yeah. Of course, yeah, right? Casinos especially. Especially. I In fact, yeah. casinos was one of the first ones. Oh, I'm sure. There were some guys out in uh, Nevada. Right. Hey, I bet you if we put an right. ATM in they there. They were probably even paying the surcharge. I bet you they were. <laughs> to be honest, in those days, I used to do some casino stuff, and I don't sure. think I ever remember paying, paying a surcharge. Yeah, of course not. Hey, we want you to get your money out, Patty. That's okay, Patty. <laughs> And we know we're going to get it anyway, right? That's funny. Yeah. So, um, so here's a, the most popular deployments today, according to NAC, are grocery stores, of course. Right. Convenience stores, of course. Right. Drug stores. But here's something else that I thought was very interesting. They say that there's a significant, inc- there's been a significant increase in ATMs in rural and inner city neighborhoods that are, don't have a lot of banks. Oh, yeah, sure, serving kind of the underbanked. Underbanked, yeah. right? I mean, mm. they see, in fact, you know, the NAC people see that as part of their right. their responsibility. Huh, interesting. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting. So, and then I want to just turn briefly as an, as an agent, why should you care about ATMs? Well, for starters, it's a good source of income. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, you get a cut of the surcharge. Right. A lot of people will split it with the merchant. Right. Some people will... Um, you know, you have depending on who you're working with, you can rent the, the ATM to the merchant. Sure. You can sell the ATM to the merchant. Right. You have you can have your servicing costs. You know, you can right. recoup right. revenues from servicing. You can recoup m- revenues from the uh, surcharges. Right. But I also think that um, you know, it's a good deal for the for the merchant because if I'm going to buy, if I'm going to take cash. Right. Out of, I mean, I'm at CVS. Right. If I'm going to take cash out there. I'm going to spend some of that cash of at CVS. So yeah, absolutely. There's their thing. And I also think that it's a really good companion, myself, I think, that's really good companion to cash discounting. It's, you've mentioned that several times, and it's interesting. I don't know any agents or ISOs using that particular strategy and linking those together, but I really do think it's a good idea. I do. I mean, I yeah. know for a fact, for example, that I've been in stores where it's like, you know, I really could put this on my debit card. Right. But I also have to go to the gas station and stop at the convenience store, you know, maybe right. get a pack of cigarettes, some candy. Right. Right. So I'm going to take all that cash out there. There. Sure. And spend it in other places. Yeah. And then I'm taking all that cash out at CVS, and CVS says, oh, by the way, if you don't want to put this on your card, we'll give you a discount. Right. Sure. You know, if I didn't have the cash, I might turn it around and go to the ATM. And yeah. I don't think I'm alone in that. No, and, and I think it's interesting, too, because it, it does kind of, I think also kind of validates the, 
you know, cost of acceptance. Right. Because, you know, it's like when the consumer comes up to the counter and they say, well, here's, you know, it's going to cost you, you know, there's a discount you pay with cash. And they might say, well, I don't have any cash. Well, there's a machine right there. Right. That's going to charge you two bucks. Yeah, but three bucks. But it might charge, it might cost you an extra five bucks. Right. If you're doing a larger ticket under cash discount. But I think it just kind of validates, like, even if it's like a $50 or $40 purchase, especially, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, you could pay $3 to go get out of the machine. Right. Or it's going to cost you a buck 50. Oh, well, and all then of a I sudden, guess I'll it's pay like, the buck it, it just kind of, to me, validates the idea of the cash discount. I really think so. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, good stuff, Patty. Mm-hmm. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. Hey everybody, today I want to talk to you about infield training and sales agent value. Now I don't normally do this, but today I really wanted to pair my uh, questions from the field here segment with the interview because uh, Patty, that was just an awesome interview. Wasn't oh, that it? was an awesome interview. Yeah. And you know, he brought up two points that I just really wanted to drive home. And that is number one, the idea of the infield training. Yeah. That was so critical. It, I was it's so really, critical. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's so hard for me a lot of times on the podcast because it's like, you know, I want to protect the confidentiality of my consulting clients. Mm-hmm. So I don't share a lot of like specific information, but you know, I have the unique ability to really see what's working and what's not working in this industry. Right. And in-field training is working. Okay. It's working. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I don't and think know about it, to tell it you. and think about it. it. It really should be working, right? right. It's I a mean, no brainer. It's a no brainer. If you're bringing in the right people and you're being a little bit more selective, you know, mm-hmm. really, I would encourage you as an ISO, please stop caring if people fill out your agent agreement. Right. Who cares? Right. What difference does it make? And, now, and uh, stop just hiring somebody because they have a pulse. Right. Right. It's I like, mean, it's like, wait a minute. You got to have a little bit of talent and right. skill. You need to make sure this person and even talent and skill like they need to be a good fit for your organization. For your organization, right? right. And and when you bring somebody on, you know, if you have to invest, there's somebody, and I won't mention any names, but there's a, a company I work with where there's a guy who has a team, extremely successful person mm-hmm. in the industry. Mm-hmm. Every time he brings in a new salesperson, he literally flies them to meet with the nearest top sales professional he has. Excellent. And they spend three days out in the field with that sales professional. Excellent. Excellent. You know, right. When you know you're going to do that, you're a little bit more selective about who you bring on. Sure. <laughs> You're not going to want to put all that investment in just right. anybody. And just the time. And you know what I mean? So it's like, make sure you've got you know, training. Obviously, I'm a big proponent of uh, sales training in the industry since you know, the one that does that. So I like that. But you know, have the sales training, but have the infield training. And then that all fits into this larger context of sales agent value. Right. We have this idea in our head that like sales agents and, and that sales agent relationship, unfortunately, many ISOs believe that relationship is simply not that valuable. 
And the reason they believe that is mm. because they're bringing people in and they're not adding any value to the relationship. Right. And they're not getting any value in return. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. invest in your salespeople and you, you know, invest in training, invest in, uh, you know, time with your leadership team, invest in management, you know, right. invest in these things, give them uh, business cards, give them, you know, potentially other things that like we talk about with Ben. Maybe it's a gas card, you know, right. benefits, whatever. But also it is. a mentor, right? Of course. Right. Yeah. So if you invest in the sales people, the value of one, you know, even marginally successful merchant sales representative mm-hmm. is thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. Right. You know, in one year, they're going to build up enough residual that you can probably sell as an ISO for 20 grand. And, you know, mm-hmm. you're worried about, well, I don't want to spend, oh my goodness, I might have spent $100 to get them trained. Right. Well, yeah. And then you're going to make 20 grand. Like What an investment, right? Right. And so it's like, yes, it's a numbers game. Yes, you're going to have attrition. Yes, you're going to lose people. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to lose 90%. Right. You know, you can impact these numbers. But in order to do that, you have to add value to the agent relationship in order to get value in return. And in, 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 in you know, putting that value in the relationship. That hundred dollar investment, or whatever, even it's a thousand dollar investment. Right. You know, if you're looking at a ninety fold payback, right. Even if it's only on half of your workforce, exactly. It's still a phenomenal opportunity. Yeah, and so it's like you got to play that numbers game with the salespeople and use the value to your advantage. Yeah. So good stuff, James. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.